morning. If you haven't already got your Bibles open there, please do so. Get your notebooks out. We're going to get into the Word this morning. But I want to begin by asking a question, and it's an important one. Inquiring minds want to know, who do you think has the largest hands in the Kaufman family? And by the Kaufman family, I'm referring to Karen and me and our four children, so the immediate family. And let me say this, by, you know, by measuring your hand, if you don't know this, your hand actually has two measurements. There's a length which goes from the bend of your wrist there up to the top of your middle finger, and then there's a width, just kind of stretch your hand out like that and go from, one, from your thumb to your pinky. So you got to measure the length and the width to get your kind of full hand measurement. And so who do you think? Now, if you said me, that'd be a pretty good guess, but you're wrong. It's Karen. She's, I'm kidding. No, she's got these little tiny, she's got these little tiny petite hands. No, 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 no. That's a joke. Uh, But uh, if you said me, you'd still be wrong because it's William. So my hand measures uh, eight inches from the bend of the wrist up here to the top. And then I'm nine and a quarter width. William is eight and a half length and nine and a half width. So at 14 years old, my son has already got bigger hands than me. He wins that contest. He's excited about that. He's learning that for the first time this morning. I measured his hand like while he was asleep in bed. Uh, But uh, he still, he wants to be taller than me. Not there yet. We'll see. We will see. But uh, in doing kind of this personal research, it's part of my interest, and so I thought, well, man, who, who has the largest hands in the world? And I thought, surely like an NBA basketball player. Um, if you remember Shaquille O'Neal, I think everybody's heard of Shaquille O'Neal. His hands, so again, mine, mine is eight inches from the bend of my wrist up here at the top. His is ten and a quarter inches long, and whereas mine, nine and a quarter width, his is 12 inches in width. That's a huge hand. Oh, Shaq's got some hands. But I share that information with you this morning um, because David uses a lot of hand imagery in our psalm this morning. And so I just wanted us to be thinking in terms of God having these enormous hands, right? We sing about, about the whole world being in his hands, and as we, as we get in and study Psalm 31 this morning, I just wanted you to have that kind of imagery in your mind of God having these enormous hands to hold us and to carry us through the hardships and difficulties of this life. You know, the Psalms are just an incredible resource to the church. I, I've mentioned this before, but the Bible has 65 books that contains God's words to us. And then there's this one unique book that's actually our words to God, and that's the Psalms. Um, And it's just such an incredible resource to us, this collection of prayers and songs that have blessed the church for centuries. It's given us the words to say when we don't know what to say. It's given us words to sing when we don't know what to sing. It's given us words to pray when we don't know what to pray. 
And Psalm 31 is a great example of a psalm that people of faith have gone to and read and reread and meditated upon and prayed through when they just don't have the words to put to their personal experience. There are actually examples in Scripture of people of faith going to Psalm 31 to find the words, to find the perspective, to find the prayer needed for their circumstance. And I want to look at two of these this morning. So we're going to have these, so these two individuals in Scripture that are going to serve as our spiritual guides. I want to let them guide us into understanding this psalm better by the way that they choose to use it to speak into their own circumstances. So we're going to look at two this morning. The first one, our first spiritual guide this morning is the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Now, uh, if you don't know much about Jeremiah, all you really need to know is that he wrote a book called Lamentations. And with that, you know Jeremiah. He prophesied from 626 to 586 B.C., He was called by God to prophesy during the last 40 years of Judah's history until the destruction at the hands of Babylon. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He wept, he mourned, he grieved, and then he wept some more. Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 1 reads, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep and weep all day and all night. That's Jeremiah. During his ministry, Jeremiah would witness and experience the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the exile of Judah. Now, we've all had some days when nothing seems to go right. Well, for Jeremiah, it was unthinkable for any one of those events to happen in his lifetime, But for him, all three occurred, each one an an incredible tragedy in its own right. And yet, Jeremiah experiences all of them. You know, growing up in the South, um, it was like an old wives' tale. People would tell me that tragedy strikes in threes. And I don't know if there's any truth to that or not, but that's how it happens for Jeremiah. And so, he's trying to find the words Because he can't. How when you experience so much tragedy, how when one person has to walk through so much grief and suffering, how do you put that into words? How do you verbalize it, what you're experiencing? How does he put into words what he's feeling in his heart? He goes to Psalm 31. This incredible resource for people of faith. And for Jeremiah, it's, it's really just a phrase that captures for him what he's experiencing. And it's found in verse 13. I'll read again verse 13 for you. David writes, For I hear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. That's the verse, but the phrase in particular that captures Jeremiah's imagination is this one. There's terror on every side. Six times in Jeremiah and in Lamentations, he uses this phrase. 
Six times. He uses this phrase from, from Psalm 31. He borrows it from David. And it becomes his motto for his life. It's the descriptor for his life. It, it sort of becomes his motto. Um, as, as you know, I like to talk about it. I'm, I'm coaching this girls team, uh, Milbury Ann's uh, basketball team. Um, and we had senior Saturday yesterday. And so that was a lot of fun, uh, recognizing our seniors. But being a coach, um, any of you all who have coached before, you know, you're always looking for like a motto. You're always looking for something to, to say over and over again, uh, to your players to kind of help them rally around something, kind of give them a rallying cry for the season. And I found one. I've been praying for one. Uh, and back in December, uh, we went to play in, play in a tournament up in Indianapolis. And that morning, I was reading in Mark chapter 6 out of the message. Um, and this is how Eugene Peterson writes Mark chapter 6 and verse 12. He's talking there about Jesus sending out the disciples. And it says, the disciples preached with joyful urgency that life can be radically different. Man, that's a great, that's a great line. That's a good one. But, but what, I, what I drew from that is, that is that term joyful urgency. Oh, man, that really spoke to me. And I decided this is it. This is going to become our motto. We were, we were playing in a tournament, and I, I wanted to give the girls something to kind of rally around. And, man, we've, we've used it all season now, that we want to be a team that plays with joyful urgency. We want to be a team that plays with joy. We want to look like we're actually having fun, right? We're smiling, and we're supporting one another, and we're encouraging each other, and, and we're not taking ourselves too seriously. We're playing with joy, right? But then we also want to play with urgency, like we're on a mission, like we're trying to accomplish something together as, uh, as a team, Play with discipline, with attitude. And so we want to play with both joy and with urgency. And so that's just been something great for us to kind of rally around together. And I, my, my hope is that these girls not only learn to play a game with joyful urgency, but then it becomes something where they go and live their life that way. They live their life with joyful urgency. That's become our motto. And that's what we do, right? We kind of just captures, there's just something that captures our heart and our attention. And it becomes our motto for our team or for our, our work or for our lives. And listen, that's what happens here for Jeremiah. This term, it becomes his life verse. That's, that's a rough one, right? Like if that terror on every side... If that becomes the descriptor of your life, that's a tough life. But Jeremiah decides this phrase captures his, his experience better than any. It's how he felt. Like there's terror on every side. Everywhere he looked, everywhere he turned, terror. He just can't escape it. All the terrible things happening around him, they're on every side. And maybe you've been there. Perhaps you've been in a season or in a time where you just felt like you can't escape it. Hard things, difficult times. The, 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 the bad and the, and the hard are just kind of hemming your life in from every side. And it almost becomes claustrophobic. 
and you just don't want to do anything. You know, grief and heartache and sadness and anguish on every side. I know that um, I know that there are several here with connections uh, to the Greenwood Park Church of Christ in Bowling Green, Kentucky. You know, really, Gregory and I were talking this morning. If you look at our state, Greenwood Park and Southside and Westport Road in Louisville, we're really kind of sister congregations um, in, our, in our state. Um, and we know a lot of people there, and they've got a great campus ministry to Western Kentucky. Um, but if you didn't know, their preaching minister, Kenneth uh, Grizel, died this past Sunday night uh, in a car accident. He preached that morning. He died that night. And, you know, our, our hearts just grieve um, with that church. And we mourn for Lori, his wife, and their three kids and their seven grandkids. And we hurt with them. You know, my basketball team, we were scheduled to play Thomas Nelson High School in Bardstown on Monday. And the head coach called me and had to cancel the game. And uh, they canceled the game because of one of their players, Lily Smith, 16-year-old junior, had died in a car accident uh, this week. Uh, She was at a youth event with her church, and she was driving home. And her car ran off the road, and she died. And so the coach was like, you know, there's just no way my girls are going to be able to play a basketball game this week. Um, And so our our girls, our team has been mourning with them this week and texting with them. And uh, it's just hard. Man, I can't imagine. And then, just personally speaking, my dad's been back in the hospital this week. Um, he just doesn't have an appetite. He's really struggling. Uh, they had to take two liters of fluid off of his heart yesterday. And, uh, you know, we just really appreciate your continued prayers for, for him and for my mom. But, you know, when you add all that stuff up, there have been moments this week for me when it's just all been a little overwhelming. And I wanted to just go sit down with a cup of coffee and not do anything for a while. And that's how life is sometimes. Just feels like there's terrible things on every side. That's how it was for Jeremiah. And that's how this psalm ministered to him. Because he reads this psalm, and it's like, ah, David gets me. David understands me. When David writes in verses 9 and 10, it's heavy. But David writes in verses 9 and 10, Psalm 31, Be merciful to me, O Lord. For I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. 
my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish. My years by groaning. My strength, it fails because of my afflictions. And my bones have grown weak. There's weakness, there's distress, there's sorrow, there's grief, there's anguish, there's groaning. David felt it too, terror on every side. So our first guy, Jeremiah, he shows us that this psalm has been written for those who are surrounded by sorrow. who are consumed by anguish, who feel like their years have been taken up by groaning. Listen, if life for you today is good and you're just rolling along problem-free, then praise the Lord. But this isn't for you today. But here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you to take note that this psalm is here for when your day of sorrow comes. You need to know it's here. You need to bookmark it, dog ear it. You need to remember that it's here because Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. And so when that day comes for you, I don't want you to be surprised. I don't want you to be caught off guard. And I want you to remember Psalm 31. When you're looking for the right words to describe your situation, remember this psalm. So Jeremiah is our first guide. Um, he brings us to this psalm. And this, he, he, he shows us that this psalm is for the one who looks ahead and sees nothing but sorrow, and who looks behind and sees nothing but grief, and who looks to their left and sees nothing but, but anguish, and who looks to their right and sees nothing but groaning. If, if that's the kind of sadness you're feeling, and if, if that's what you're experiencing in your life today, then let Jeremiah serve as your guide and lead you in your season of sadness to this psalm. This is where he brings us. And then here, our second guide comes along. And our second guide this morning is Jesus himself. So Jeremiah has brought us here in our sadness to meet our second guide, Jesus. There are three psalms that serve together as a commentary on the cross of Jesus. These three psalms uniquely bring us close to the heart of Christ when he was on the cross. It's almost as if they were written for him. It's almost as if David uh, was given the privilege to, to, to write the words for that moment. When all the sin 
when all the suffering, when all the heartache, when all the brokenness of the world was placed on Jesus, and Jesus didn't have the words, and he didn't have the strength, these psalms were for him. These psalms gave him the words and gave him the perspective. And this so-called cross trilogy is Psalm 22, Psalm 31, and Psalm 69. And our psalm is part of that trilogy. And here we find in Psalm 31, verse 5, that Jesus' final words on the cross are actually taken from this psalm. Again, Jesus on the cross in so much suffering and so much anguish, going through so much sadness, experiencing so much brokenness and pain. He doesn't have the words. He borrows these words from David. In Psalm 31, when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, Jeremiah is the one who points us here. Jeremiah is the one who guides us here with all of our sadness and our grief. And then now Jesus shows us what to do with all the sadness. The man of sorrows shows us the way. You see, here's how this psalm ministers to Jesus in his sadness. When he doesn't have the words due to the enormity of of the sorrow and the suffering, this is his prayer. When he doesn't know what to pray, this is his prayer. And through this, he shows us how to pray. When we're overwhelmed with sorrow, when our hearts are broken into a million pieces, when we're full of nothing but anguish and pain, when we're surrounded by terror on every side, it's the model prayer for anyone who is suffering in that way. Jesus prays, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. What a prayer. Have you ever been so sad that you've had a hard time breathing? You ever been there? It's like you're so upset that you can't even catch your breath. I can remember my kids when they're little crying and being so upset and having to tell them, you know, look at me, breathe. You have to breathe. But tragedy can take our breath away. When when the weight of the sadness you're experiencing literally takes your breath away, it's like someone standing on your chest. The heaviness of it. You just can't breathe. 
This word translated spirit in verse 5 is the word for breath. You see, Jesus here is entrusting. Here's what he's showing us to do. He's leading the way here with this prayer. He's showing us that he's choosing here to entrust his every breath into the hands of the Father. His breath. You see, if, if, if you're struggling and just barely making it, and someone asks you how you're doing, you might say, well, I'm just living day to day. Yet, if you were really honest, you know day to day is probably being too generous. Sometimes it's more like just hour to hour or minute to minute or better yet, breath to breath. And I think this is the kind of sorrow and the type of suffering that Jesus was experiencing on the cross. He's not living day to day. He's living breath to breath. And he prays in that, Father, into your hands, I commit my breath. So when we can't breathe because the sorrow is too great, then we can pray, Father, into your hands, I commit my next breath. It becomes sort of a breathing prayer. Father, I trust you with my next breath. I began this morning talking about hands, and it's really important imagery in this psalm. Jesus here commits his next breath, his spirit, into the hands of his Father. He he entrusts his breath into the hands of his Father. You see, the imagery of this psalm is the only way for us to deal with the sorrow and the suffering of this life is in the hands of the Lord. That's the only place. He's the only one who can carry us through it. We can't get through it on our own. We can't get through it together. That's helpful. But the only way to make it through the sorrows and the sadness of this life is in the hands of the Father and entrusting every breath to his hands. He's the only one who can carry us through it. I heard some hard wisdom about suffering this week, and it really spoke to me, and I've, I've thought about it a lot, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. I heard this from someone
who's going through something very difficult. And here's what she said. She said, I will never get over this sadness, but I trust the Lord will carry me through it. I'll never get over this sadness, but I trust the Lord will carry me through it. And if you hear the wisdom of that statement, then you get the imagery of the hands because that's how life is sometimes. You won't get over it. But in the hands of the Lord, you can get through it. This psalm ends with a word of encouragement. And it's a heavy psalm. And so... I want to end it here as the psalm ends with this word of encouragement uh, as well this morning. And it's a word to all of you who are in a season of suffering, to all of you who are experiencing sadness and are trusting the Lord for your next breath. And it's verse 24. And I would like to read it to you from uh, the message because I really uh, like what Eugene Peterson does with this verse. It's so pastoral. Um, And so here it is, verse 24. It reads, be brave, be strong, don't give up, expect God to get here soon. Be brave, be strong, don't give up. Expect God to get here soon. Isn't that good? You see, the only way for us to be brave in this life, the only way for us to be strong in this life, the only way for us to not give up in this life is to expect God to be there for my next breath. Because if he's not there, I don't have to take it. I've summarized it this way. Kind of put my own little spin on what Eugene Peterson did with this, just to kind of encourage us here at our conclusion. Don't give up. Expect God to show up. Don't give up. Expect God to show up. Don't give up. Expect God to show up. And then take your next breath. Let's pray. Father, I just know I just know that people are hurting and people are struggling. People are sad. No, people 
tragically lost loved ones this week. You know, people who expecting someone to arrive at home and they didn't. You know, people have been introduced this week suffering and hurting and hardship that they, they know they won't ever get over. But they trust that in your hands, they'll get through it. And so, I'm thankful for these words to us in Psalm 31. I'm thankful that Jeremiah brings us here. And then I'm thankful for this prayer of Jesus. When he didn't have the words on the cross that he prayed, Father, into your hands, I commit my breath. Lord, I pray that this has ministered to those who are hurting. I pray, Father, for those who need your comfort it needs your care this week. Who need to just be, who know, who, who just need to know that they're not alone in their grief and in their sadness. May you comfort them this week and be with them in unique and special ways. Father, we love you so much. We're just so thankful um, for your son, Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. I'd like to just offer an invitation um, as we conclude. The good news is um, that God did show up in the person of Jesus Christ. He showed up, and he took on all of our sadness, and he took on all of our grief, and he took on all of our sorrow. He took on all the brokenness. He experienced all of it. You cannot experience any hardship or difficulty in this life that Jesus hasn't. He experienced it. He knows it. He's experienced our sin. He knows our sin. He even has tasted death itself. And listen, here's the good news. He took it all to the grave. He took all of it. And took it to the grave. And you know where it stayed? The grave. And you know who didn't stay? Jesus. He came up. And he rose from the grave to bring new life to all of us. In our sorrow and in our suffering. To give us new life and to breathe into us the breath of life through his Holy Spirit. And this morning, if you have never received that life in Christ. The offer is for you. We'd love for you to come and receive it, to put Christ on in baptism, to allow him to breathe his life into your life this morning to give you new life in Christ. Please come as we stand together and sing.